To be an entrepreneur is definitely to walk the path that's less traveled. And getting investors to change their mind and trying to explain them what was going on and where the unconscious bias was happening. It just brought like a lot of great light to the continent and the possibilities there. When you look at how much we've done with the business right now, why is there a question? It resulted in almost every major firm not wanting to be socially blasted for not only a lack of diversity within the portfolio. Just historically, we do not fit into the typical mold of what VC companies are looking for. Black founders actually perform 30% better than white founders. One thing that I often advise other founders is to pursue wisdom and not knowledge. Not all skin folk or kin folk. I feel like people hear Juneteenth and they're like, oh, that's a black cop. They don't really know why. Ask for what you want and maybe even more than what you deserve. What's up on Foundation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for checking out this special episode of Founders Unfound. That was Kwame Bowler, Amira Rasul, and Derek Relaford, three exciting founders of African descent. It's 2021, and on June 24th, we all assembled to have an open and honest discussion on the state of black entrepreneurship and fundraising. Many thanks to Isaac Cato and Chena Titcomb from Techstar Seattle for organizing this panel and the live event. There's lots of great nuggets dropped by our panelists, and you'll want to listen in. As always, please make sure to like and subscribe. We're available anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, drop us a review on Apple or Podchaser.com. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, or um, perhaps evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Isaac Cato, and I'm the Managing Director of Techstars Seattle. Techstars is the global network that helps entrepreneurs succeed, and I have the best job in the world in that I get to run Techstars Seattle and work day in and day out with incredible entrepreneurs, folks who are brilliant, visionary, resilient, and uh, determined to make the world a better place. Techstars Seattle is the third oldest accelerator in our global network of around 50 accelerators, and our alums have had a tremendous amount of success. Uh, of the 120 companies or so that have gone through the program in the last 12 years, uh, roughly 75% are still in business or have exited, and uh, collectively, they've raised about a billion and a half dollars of capital and include a number of unicorns in their midst. In my two years of running Techstars Seattle, uh, I've had the distinct honor and pleasure to work with a number of amazing black founders, uh, a couple of whom are with us today. And they've done an incredible job at building uh, really interesting, rapidly growing businesses, as well as securing uh, venture capital. And they'll be sharing their stories and experiences today. However, despite their successes, in my opinion, uh, Black and other underrepresented minority founders are still a group who don't receive uh, fair or adequate attention or respect from enough traditional mainstream tech investors. And while there's certainly more media attention and increased investor awareness than there might have been, say, you know, a year or two ago, uh, certainly 10 years ago, I, I still feel like things aren't where they need to be. And so... I hope we can continue to have conversations like today's and shine a light on this issue until we do reach more parity and equity for uh, Black founders, particularly when it comes to raising capital. Uh, so today, I'm really honored uh, to welcome one of our uh, superstar mentors at Techstar Seattle, Dan Kihanya, who's going to join us as a moder our moderator. Uh, Dan's a serial entrepreneur himself and the host of the Founders Unfound podcast. Dan is going to be speaking today with three incredible Techstars alums, Kwame, Amira, and, and Derekus, about their experiences. And 
So um, Dan, Amira, Derek, and Kwame, thank you very, very much for sharing your time with us today. And I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing what you have to say. So Dan, take it away. Thanks, Isaac. Very excited to be here. And uh, this is a great topic, very timely. And so we have this great concept of talking about where things are going for tech founders and fundraising, uh, particularly for black founders. As Isaac mentioned, in the last year, we've had this pandemic, a major economic downturn, crazy uh, contentious election, um, a somewhat awakening from corporate America around diversity and inclusion a struggle for a lot of entrepreneurs to come out of 2020. And then now in 2021, we see, you know, as Isaac mentioned, lots of attention to Black founders. And we ironically have this record-setting level in 2021 of venture capital and venture funding, but it isn't necessarily translating to the backing of Black founders. So we're going to try and get into that today. And so a little bit about me, as Isaac mentioned, I've been an entrepreneur for for decades now. Um, I've done four startups uh, as an early exec or founder uh, in the tech space. And so I've been fortunate to go through three exits and raising money. And this is my third downturn. So I've seen a lot. So I do a lot of mentoring. I'm a mentor at Techstars and several other programs, occasional angel investor. As Isaac also mentioned, I, I'm the creator and host of Founders Unfound. So super excited to have these three superstars in our panel discussion. Without further ado, let's introduce our panelists. So we have Amira, Kwame, and Derekis. And what I'm going to do, rather than underwhelm with my ability to introduce how great they are, I'm going to let them talk about themselves first, and then we'll get into our questions. So why don't we start with Amira? Tell us just you know a little bit about who you are and uh, what, what your startup is and what you're doing. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Amir Asul. I'm the founder and CEO of The Folklore. We are an e-commerce platform that sells luxury designer fashion and lifestyle products from designers uh, based in Africa and the diaspora. So you can find us at thefolklore.com. And uh, let's see, how about you, Derekus? My name is Derekus. I'm the founder of Store Cash. Yeah, we um, are focusing on the un- and underbank market, and we are building out a neo bank for those people and customers that need a better way to bank. Awesome. Glad to have you. And my friend Kwame. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Kwame Gore. I'm the co-founder and the CEO of New. Uh, we're a dual marketplace that connects homeowners and housekeepers. Our beachhead is within the vacation rental industry, uh, where we figured out a way to use a sophisticated supply chain system when combined with technology to augment cleaners, enabling them to do more jobs in less time to earn more new than they could independently. As you can see, very different businesses. And uh, the common thread for this group is they've all been through Techstars. And uh, I would say that they've all sort of had their business emerge in the last, call it, uh, you know, two to three years. So they've lived through this pre-pandemic, pre-2020, through 2020 into 2021. So they should have really fresh and super insightful perspectives on the journey. So I want to start with a little bit of a softball just to kind of like help us feel good about things before we dig into some meat. And like we can go in whatever order anybody wants. But what's a feel-good story that you've heard in the last 12 months about Black entrepreneurship? Either it's somebody specific or a program or a news story. It could even be about yourself or your own company. But what's what's something that gave you some some hope and optimism in the last 12 months? I guess I'll go first. So Mac Ventures is an investor in Storecash. And they invested 
right before the pandemic. <laughs> uh, so it was a great story to see towards the end of the pandemic that they were the first black VC firm to raise the most in the history of VC um, at 110 million. So um, that was uh, a great story to see, not just for me, but <laughs> also uh, to know that our community is getting uh, some more assistance and more opportunities in this space. Nice. Yeah. And Marlon and that group is amazing. And it's, as you're pointing out, there's a really, it's, it's two sides of the coin, right? Not just black founders, but we're seeing, you know, emerging fund managers and check writers, which is, which is great. With, with me specifically, there was actually two stories. Cause when I first saw that question, I just thought, what was the biggest feel good of like that came out of the pandemic? And there was like two in my mind. Like one was like the environment. I remember seeing a story to where because carbon emissions had dropped so low, uh, our ozone was actually starting to repair itself, like animals that weren't in existence or rather getting lower in the endangered list were starting to come back. Like it felt good knowing that our earth could potentially heal ourselves. And I guess that got me a little bit excited and elated because I thought that if any advancement of both technology and even our own progression, we could consciously maybe undo some of the damage we've done over the years. Uh, within the African startup community, like the one thing that got me at least most recently excited is uh, Akechi. Like Akechi just recently partnered with Visa. And I was like, that's like super awesome. And like, um, if we could potentially find the link to that and share that, I just thought like seeing that Juneteenth special, especially with respect to the panel and how it was organized was really cool and dope. So another Techstars company, Tribal is the name of the company. And they actually just did a huge partnership. And I just thought it was really awesome. That's great. Yeah. Akechi is uh, killing it now. And, and Tribal is an amazing story. Also a Techstar alum and from Seattle. I would say um, the uh, Haystack acquisition was something that really got me excited because aside from them being Black and already it being hard to exit as a, as a Black founder, they're also based in Africa, which is also like a whole nother story when it comes to raising capital or being able to sell your company. So it was great to see that like they had two major things in front of them and they were still able to succeed. And then it also like provides, you know, insight to these um, investors who don't think it's possible to invest in these companies and actually get a successful exit. I thought that it just brought like a lot of great light to the continent and the possibilities there. That's a great, that's a great example. Yeah. They, and, uh, you know, I think there's been lots of stories written about how there's going to be a cascading effect. It's creating all these, these new investors or people who are getting liquidity from being a part of the, the, that early team and, and really drawing the lens of focus to Africa in general and startups there. When I was in my dot com era, we went through a cycle where there was all these things with Netflix and Amazon and Yahoo. And then there was sort of this lull in the market and everybody thought, ah, internet's done. And then eBay went public. And when, and, and there was about a, like a five month window there, which isn't that long in the grand scheme of things, but we thought like, oh boy. Um, and once eBay went public, it just unleashed this, this, uh, this next wave. So I think you're right, Amir. We'll look back on the Paystack acquisition as kind of a seminal event. Good. You all didn't have the same one, which means that there is some positive to be taken out there and some, and some good news. So let's look at, I mean, the reality is the last 12 months have been really profound. And so. One of the things I'd like to sort of look at is from an, an inflection point point of view. If we look at sort of George Floyd and in general, the pandemic, what's different in June 2021 
that wasn't the same, say, in February 2020, either better or worse, specifically as a black founder? I think it's gotten better. And, and when I say better, that doesn't quite correlate with the overall of everything getting better. It correlates with the attention being on us as black founders, especially in uh, VC. That's gotten better. Um, but there's a lot more components that we need in order to get to, you know, start to finish. Right. But I, I think there's a lot more awareness. Um, and a lot more investors kind of focusing some of their investment uh, in the space. And, you know, everything starts somewhere. And I think that we're making some good leeway when you kind of look at the whole scheme of things. And this is one of those pivotal moments in history uh, that we'll kind of go back to and we'll say that's where there was a change that was made us as Black entrepreneurs in, in the D.C. space. I semi-agree with Derekus, and I'll clarify why. I think the shift wasn't necessarily so much onto black founders as it was to a lot of the VC community on their portfolios and the lack of black founders being present. And I think what that ended up resulting in a lot of social shaming, especially like you know, with the wake of George Floyd and a lot of VC practices, especially with venture capital representing more or less the epitome of the 1% and the lack of wealth distribution uh, being circulated into founders of color. And when a lot of people started to really investigate this and look into this, it resulted in almost every major firm not wanting to be socially blasted for not only a lack of diversity within their portfolio, but even within their staffing. I know that diversity had come up as a very common and very popular topic within the venture community, but um, a lot of VC investment even really just plunged towards women. And that's great. I'm, I'm happy to see that there's a lot of progress there and we're, we're not where we should be. Like, absolutely not until like we're actually hitting metrics that are closely representative of the population. And you know that there's some form of bias present when it comes to the decision making that's happening in those rooms. But the reality of it and why I think that there was a shift is mainly because now people are paying attention. And my hope is that it isn't a trend to where it's only present in the moment currently because people are paying attention. Uh, hopefully, it's, uh, I'm pretty confident it can be everlasting. Because I think that what's going to end up happening is that the investment will be fruitful, which will ultimately result in more companies getting access to some of the capital and wealth opportunities available. But that's just my opinion on the subject. Very well said. Yes, I definitely agree with Kwame and even him saying like a lot of the diversity dollars went into women. I'd like to make a side, side note that it was not black women that it went into. <laughs> but yeah, so I think when I think about how things have improved. I think it's easier to get on the phone, get people on the phone and to get a response back to an email or to get an introduction to someone. Now, where it goes from there, I don't really have much confidence in like what has happened since. I think a lot of people have opened office hours and, you know, are providing a lot of advice. I don't know how much actual money is going out. And if it's those conversations are just to be able to check the box saying that, you know, I've spoken to the I've spoken to them. It just wasn't a right fit. Like Kwame also mentioned, it's like, you know, if you're still measuring everything by the same ruler and you have not changed like the structural things, you're going to always say that we're not going to fit because just historically based off of where we come from economically, socially, we do not fit into the typical mold of what VC companies are looking for. VC, VC companies have been historically founded by, 
you know, white males who come from different circumstances. And so if they're going to continue to measure them and saying, you didn't raise a $100,000, $150,000 friends and family so that you can get to X revenue in a year, like your traction's too low, you know, but it's like, also, when I when I think about it, it's I have seen some black founders who have gotten money from this like racial reckoning. That's what they're calling it. And I find that it's been companies that it's like the metrics are there. And like, you're lucky you got you you actually accepted this phone call. You're lucky you got into this deal because it was going to be <laughs> like a really big company. And the fact that you, you know, had been able to get on the phone with them before was based off of the fact that you just weren't really looking for black founders. But it's been companies that are like sure bets that like, are in a space in the tech industry where like they know it's going to make a lot of money. But like when it comes to a company like mine, which is fashion, which is consumer, which is something that has some sort of cultural, you know, attachment to it, they're questioning the market size. They're if we're saying that we're catering to a black audience, which in my case we're not we're catering to a general audience, but like talking and having those conversations, you know, I've had conversations with tons of investors, but the investors who ended up betting on me were black because they knew about our customer and our, our story. But everyone else loved what we were doing, but they just couldn't make it make sense because they've never heard, they've never, they didn't really care to do the, the research that was necessary for them to actually be able to like have, have this deal make sense for them. So, you know, it's, it's, I think that people are getting visibility and they're getting calls and opportunities to communicate more, but I don't see how that's manifested into a lot more dollars into these companies. To piggyback off of the, uh, before the pandemic, um, how I would actually raise, how I actually raised our first round, a lot focused around when I got those no's, trying to explain why I potentially got the no and getting investors to change their minds and trying to explain them what was going on and where the unconscious bias was happening. When they would say, well, no, I don't know. I don't think it would quite work out. I had to sit down and explain to them. I said, but why? Because when you look at my background, when you look at all I've accomplished, when you look at me taking $25,000 of previous business and turning it into a multi-million dollar business, no VC funding at all, when you look at how much we've done with the business right now, why is there a question? And I believe there's, and I would go through this whole thing that there must be a question because when you think of success in this field, you see you know, in your unconscious mind, a lot of white guys. And when you see me, I don't fit any of those molds. Um, and now giving me the opportunity, Marlon said uh, something that was really, really uh, shocking, but not shocking to me. He was saying that the black founders actually perform 30% better than white founders. It's because they only get these opportunities, <laughs> you know, um, so far in between, they have to perform and, you know, they do whatever they need to do in order to perform. So I would say all these statistics and break all these things down. And sometimes I would turn those no's into yeses, but I had to explain to them what was actually happening um, and why they were saying what they were saying. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I think, you know, the, the common thing that I'm hearing is that there's somewhat of a, an awareness a openness to potentially considering that there is a bias and there is a, there are several blind spots, but we're still early in the recalibration of how that manifests itself into the funding trajectory and the deal flow, right? And like you said, Derekus, I mean, you have ways to check the boxes that don't fit the ways that they expect the boxes to be checked. So you have to take that extra step. And I like what you said about what Marlon shared with you, because, you know, I see that on the podcast too. 
the distance traveled, right? As Kapoor Capital says, right? We have to go a lot farther, a lot harder with a lot more friction and impediments to, to get to even to where we are. As Amir was saying, we don't have friends and family money that we can use to sort of put wind in our sails and give ourselves a bunch of traction. So I, I, I think it's really interesting that you, you all are still, I mean, I, I would say you're, you're leaning towards like there's still a lot more work to do, but you're not completely, um, doom and gloom, which is good. I think that a lot of programs and bigger investors are trying to figure it out. You know, what I, what I like to say is in tech, we, we do the impossible all the time. So changing the, the ability for underrepresented founders to get into the pipeline for deal flow is, it shouldn't feel like it's this uh, impossible task. Let me ask this question. When you think about the day to day of being kind of a black entrepreneur, obviously there's lessons, there's insights that you get. What's something that you would recommend to a founder who's following in your footsteps or at least is in the earlier stages? starting today, like they're starting their company in 2021. From what you know and what you see and what you've experienced, what's kind of a big recommendation you would make for them? Yeah, I'd say um, build your team out earlier. Like I went at it alone for like the first like 18 months and it was hard. And like I'd have some people who would jump in and then drop out. But I would say that the startup space is tough to be in. And if you don't have a co-founder, which I didn't have a co-founder, you should at least have like a strong team that maybe it's not full time because you probably can't afford it, but like make sure that you get some people to believe in what you're doing and who want to be actively involved. And, you know, once you're able to raise that money, come on full time, uh, because, you know, having those people to bounce ideas off of or to like be able to connect you with their network and be able to provide more ideas and, and resources is really valuable. Like don't be afraid to give some people some equity, ask your friend or somebody that you met at a conference, like, I know you said you're interested in this. I'm trying to build something like this. We have to make sure that we're not too afraid to ask and to like convince people to bet on us uh, because other groups are not afraid to do that. And I think that that's been something that's kind of held us back is asking each other for help. Piggybacking off of what Amira said, plus one everything Amira said, I actually wanted to think through of your question and be a little bit more intentional on what uniquely I've identified as a pattern among entrepreneurs of color than I've seen among just different entrepreneurs in general. One thing that I often advise other founders is to pursue wisdom and not knowledge. You know, there's often a lot of times to where someone has already experienced a lot of the challenges that you face or has, you know, solved a similar problem and getting them to make the largest investment uh, of their time into you first uh, can be incredible and can help circumvent a lot of the challenges that you'll face in building your business. And the more that you surround yourself, not just with like-minded individuals, but particularly entrepreneurs who are a little bit further ahead than you, they can give you pounds of advice that'll save you years or months of time wasted and you can leverage their learnings to compound them and evolve in a way in which you'll get there that much faster. So help can come anywhere. When I first moved here, of course, I didn't have a job. <laughs> so um, I was uh, Ubering um, people around and I met a guy named Ben Cat, and I remember the ride and I was like, yeah, I'm trying to start this thing. Um, and I had just applied for a couple of the major companies and stuff. And I was waiting to hear back. But I was telling him about what we were working on. And he said, 
why do you think you can do this? And I said, well, I've done a few things. Um, and I told him and then, you know, I dropped him off and all. And I got his phone number. He got mine. And later that night, he called me back, like really excited. He was like, you actually did everything you say you did. Like you were here, you did this, this. I said, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, then he said, what are you Ubering for? I was like, well, you know, I just moved here, you know, and I need to make some type of money. He said, well, if you think you can do this, I want to try to help. And he connected me with some of his friends, which stuck with me, no pay for over two years. And to be quite honest, um, one of them is in India and I didn't, I've never met him in person. Um, and he's, he stuck with me this long with very little pay. And then we finally got funded so that I could finally pay. And, you know, would never met my co-founder if I didn't take, you know, that ride. And, um, you know, I've talked to many different people throughout that ride. I actually talked to one of the guys that was a part of the uh, Postmates acquisition. He was telling me, you should go through, you know, one of these uh, accelerator programs. And that's why, you know, started really like focusing on accelerator. So um, you can get help from, from anywhere, especially in Silicon Valley, <laughs> but you can get help from anywhere, you know? So I, I would say that's one major. And then another thing I would say, especially for our community, you know, there, there is a lot of reason for us to be frustrated, but help can does not only just come from our community. There was one Asian guy. His name was Lester. This guy helped me so much. Anytime I had an issue and then, you know, I would call him up. And at some point I was like, I got to give you some shares or something. He was like, no, just help the next person. And I got introduced to him by someone else that I had met at one of these events, a white lady. <laughs> and I, j I just say that because in our community, sometimes, and, and I say this from personal experience, sometimes um, when I came out here, there was a lot of people that said, you're crazy, you're black, you think you can get uh, money like white people and get them to help fund your business and different things like that. Anybody can help and anybody can be a part of your assistance. Um, so just have an open mind, of course, believe in yourself uh, and get ready for a long ride. So let me flip the question a little bit and say, let's say there's investors that are listening and they seem to have the intention and desire to be open. Like, what's your recommendations for them to get you to be across the table from them pitching? And, and then when you are pitching, what's what's some recommendations or suggestions for that that whole dynamic? I lean into who you are. Because you have a unique perspective. And one thing investors can't do, they can't um, see it from your perspective, especially if they're not black. And in a lot of cases, those unique perspectives, they wish, you know, that they had or they had insight on. And when you can show them that insight from your perspective, um, it could potentially let them see that they may have a, a unique position or understanding the market. Part of me genuinely believes that although the investment community is often well-intentioned, we're already kind of committing the first steps and recognizing that in some ways implicit bias exists. If that is at least acknowledged, then that may, you know, help in fostering some of the decision-making systems uh, in terms of when they make a decision and how they make a decision. Another thing that resonated well with me was that um, I know that for a good portion of news history, as which is very common with a lot of African founders or really just any any founder within the historically disenfranchised community is that you see trends where they're often making dimes or making get expecting dollar results on dime or nickel or even sometimes penny budgets 
And it's sometimes double clicking and making sure that they're looking into how they got the traction that they have and with respect to the resources that they've had at their disposal. Uh, I, I even remember very when we, when new was actually coming up that one investor had shared with me that one of the business mistakes that he had seen is that in many instances, founders were pursuing capital way too early. And that because of that, he had, he had more or less a bias to where when founders would say they would need money to do X, um, it would almost always shut his perspective down because he believed that a founder would be creative enough to always bypass or walk through walls, which, you know, I can't agree with. I think that, uh, sometimes pressure can be a really interesting way to manifest innovation, but there's always going to be at some limit to what a person is capable of achieving with respect to the resources they have. And so maybe if they are interested, uh, potentially in seeing and following them, that they at least invest their time, their network, or their resources, uh, independent of their wealth, to help them get to that next milestone. Because sometimes it's often, like I said, knowledge or having access to wisdom that can be beneficial. Sometimes it's just even within their network to where they can connect them with people that are decision makers, that it gives them access to credits uh, or even other systems that they traditionally would not get access to to be able to test against their assumptions. Like, I'm not naive. These are investments. You know, this isn't charity. Like, realistically speaking, when people are choosing to make an investment in a company, they're doing so because they're wanting to make a financially prudent decision. And having the expectation that someone is making an investment in someone because they're of color is not only just disrespectful, but it's just kind of disheartening. And, you know, if you're cautious with your decision making because you're not confident that the idea is there or the traction is there, maybe work with them to figure out how you can get them to that point instead of dismissing them because they're in a position where they're limited and how they can do so because they don't have access to capital. So I have two things. I would say, uh, what is it that our parents usually say? Don't assume because you'll make an ass out of you and me. Uh, I feel like assumptions come from prejudice. You know, it comes from this is what I think about this, this group, even if it's like unconscious, you know? And so there are going to be certain assumptions that you make that I feel like a lot of times they don't even give us the opportunity to actually address. You know, a lot of a lot of no's that I got were first call no's with 30 minutes, you know, 30 minute conversation. And then they'll come back to me with an email about why they're saying no. And it's and I'll read through it. And I'm like, yeah, but I could have explained all of this to you. And you have to think about it from the standpoint of you. These are mostly white men and you have had a white male experience that is essentially a lot of times void of anything outside of that world, like different languages, other people's cultures, not always, but. You know, so there are a lot of things that are not known. And even if you're the most brilliant person, you have to be able to give us the opportunity, especially when you don't know the market that well. And especially if the market has some sort of like ties to like our our race or, or our culture, the opportunity to actually be able to answer some of those questions instead of you assuming based off of like the thousands of white founders that you've spoken to. That, oh, I assume that because they didn't do, they, they didn't do X. That's why this happened. Why? You know, we have very unique experience. So allow us to actually, and these aren't excuses that we'll offer. These are actual valid explanations. Um, and then the second thing that I would say is bringing on the one white guy who's a Harvard, uh, undergrad and 
a Stanford MBA to be your black liaison or like black, you know, founder whisperer is not the way to go. There's a whole like not all, not all skin folk or kin folk. So there's that. And then on top of, you know, so there's not every, not every black person that you're going to talk to is really down or for the movement, even know other black people other than their families. So that's like number one. So you might be, you know, putting all this energy into building somebody who's not even connected to the community. Or, you know, it's just you can't rely on one person. So you also have to think about the black experience and how vast it is. And so if you're going to, you know, be thinking about how do we build an initiative, don't just go to the one black guy or the or the intern. Like make sure that you're getting perspectives from different types of black people, people who came from different socioeconomic backgrounds, people who come from different industries. Um, because I often find that, you know, when I turn on CNBC or TechCrunch, they're talking to the same five black people and considering them the thought leaders. And I'm like, I know for a fact that black person don't even talk to other black people. So like, I don't even know why they're speaking on our behalf, you know? So uh, I would really say really look, look at the black people that you are actually talking to, making sure that they actually have a connection within the community and that you just talk to a, a wider number of black people. Amir always keeps it real. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So this was put together sort of in conjunction with Juneteenth and with the concept of doing this was before it became a holiday. What does it mean to you that Juneteenth is now a holiday? Or what does Juneteenth mean to you in general? I just don't want this to become commercialized. I don't want to see a Juneteenth sale. I don't want to see what Ikea did with the Juneteenth special menu. I just want y'all to let us be black in peace on Juneteenth. You don't even have to tell me happy Juneteenth. Honestly, like, just let us celebrate. That's why, I mean, to me, it doesn't make sense that it's a national holiday, but that's a whole nother conversation. But yeah, I just feel like it does not need to be something that we're now trying to commercialize. And I see that that's probably where it's going to go. And I'm just waiting for next year's Juneteenth sales so I can know what retailers to no longer support. Uh, because, you know, really what the, this is a commemoration of the final, you know, enslaved people in Texas finding out that two years later that they are free. And that's really what we should be celebrating. Like I went to Lamarck Park and just like spent money on with like black women and black men out there and just ate food and like listen to good music. And like, that's kind of like how I feel like we should celebrate and that the other things outside of that are just like a lot of like just noise and nonsense. So I'm guessing no promo codes on Juneteenth or in the folklore, huh, Amira? Um, Absolutely not. In my opinion, I don't disagree with Amira. I do think it's a holiday that within our community should definitely be privatized and well, and well celebrated within. But, you know, I do believe that the first step to dispelling ignorance is through empathy. And I do appreciate that the fact that the holiday calls some form of attention to what took place. And maybe I think what's being lost is the history behind the holiday, which often does happen in many instances where they're commercialized. But I do believe that in some ways it's a step in the right direction. I just didn't want this to be some form of a consolation prize. I think that there's a lot of opportunity for growth that exists and for improvement as well. And that's not just limited to creating national holidays, but I'm, I'm not going to disagree in saying that I don't think it's a positive step. And I think we as a people should choose to make sure that we're doing our part, supporting other businesses um, from different communities and specifically disenfranchised ones and on Juneteenth specifically on businesses of color. But still, 
that being said, I, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. I, I thought it was kind of humorous in some cases to get like happy Juneteenth text from some of my, some, some, some friends that I was like, okay, you know, and what am I doing for Juneteenth this year was, uh, it was, I knew it came from a good place and was well intentioned. So I thought it was interesting and I, I, I took it in stride. You know, uh, we, we've had the conversation of woke, right? <laughs> and some people being too woke, uh, in the wrong direction of woke. And of course, I, I do think that it's a step in the right direction and everything is steps. And, you know, this, this is that first step. I think that it's a good step in the right direction. If we commercialize black owned businesses to support them throughout this Juneteenth time, great, right? Uh, but, and, you know, doing advertisements and different things for them, that, that'd be great. Facebook said, Hey, you know, we're doing free advertisements for black owned businesses, but to kind of focus the attention where it needs to be focused at. And that IKEA situation was. <laughs> it's funny, but not funny, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's where like the woke part, like I think that some people are, are, are woke, but they don't even know why they're woke. Uh, <laughs> and first they have to understand why they're woke uh, to understand what to be woke for. Right. So to be honest, I think that was deliberate. I kind of looked at, I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, I think we don't intend to celebrate the end of things too much in, in the United States. It's, it's more like uh, an occurrence that happens every year or something that began. And I kind of think about Juneteenth as the beginning of when Americans who were of African descent became humans as a part of society. Now, it's been a long, long journey for that. It wasn't an overnight, like instant equality. But I also think it is good because it helps to create this reflection, hopefully create this reflection about the era of slavery. And it's not just, you know, a two line paragraph in a history book. And Dan, that's what I want the holiday to be. I want people to know exactly. I feel like people hear Juneteenth and they're like, oh, that's a black holiday. They don't really know why. And I want them to know why um, it's a black holiday and, and that to be explained and talked about. They won't know, though, because they are banning critical race theory from the classroom. So <laughs> see, you see how like it doesn't connect. The one step forward, one and a half step back. But, you know, hopefully that the uh, progress is there. So we have a couple of questions in the chat from folks. So N Ng asks, what inspired you to create your startup? And has that changed over time? And anybody who wants the, the long versions of any of that, listen to the episodes with each of these people on Founders Unfound because they go into a lot of depth. But, but maybe just share a, like a minute or two about the origin, aha, about your startup. Uh, for me specifically, New was founded actually as a spinoff from a completely different problem from a completely different business. And so on a separate business, I and a couple of others owned vacation rental properties and we couldn't find a cleaner. Uh, we'd cycled through four different cleaners and thought that it would be best to try to solve that problem ourselves. And so we partnered with another business within the industry to strategically address that problem and then realized that we were definitely the wrong guys to pick up toilet brushes. And after leveraging a lot of learnings and thousands of dollars and lost opportunities, uh, we then, you know, really had that set in the developed customer empathy with who we identified was actually our customer, which are the housekeepers. 
And once we really started to recognize them as both a customer as well as someone that we had to build the experience around, we then later pivoted to building the marketplace, which was new, and then ended up compounding a lot of learning to get to where we are today. For me, it was a matter of wanting to find a way to economically empower Black people globally and also find a way for us to connect. I am like really passionate about Pan-Africanism and the idea of like, if globally we are able to uh, uplift one another, then we'll be able to kind of get ourselves out of the situation that we were put in. So yeah, I think my, my major thing was I was involved in fashion. I wasn't passionate about fashion, but I felt like the industry was not yet having the conversations that they're having now and that I was limiting uh, my ability to actually make an impact within my community by remaining in a white space that basically just promoted and got other white people money. Um, and so I basically want to create our own space for us to be able to promote these designers, give them access to customers and be able to help them build out businesses that, you know, were valued at the same, the same way that um, European brands are valued. So my main thing was like economic development and opportunity. I started store cash because I was getting kind of the itch. I got a chance to work at some top tech companies. I saw how awesome it was, uh, but then I also came out here to start a startup and my nephew texted me and asked me for money. So I told him, you know, download them on Cash App. Uh, that's when I later found out there was a big, huge gap in the market. Um, he had to be 18 years older and he also needed a bank account. So I was kind of curious uh, and I wanted to uh, do some research on how many people are unbanked in the U.S. And it's about 56 million Americans that are unbanked. And then there's this teen market <laughs> um, that are unbanked, pre-banked. And I wanted to find a way to solve that. That unbanked and underbanked market was 20% um, in the Black community. That gave me even more incentive and also um more of a um, reason to tackle it for our community. Um, and a lot of companies aren't being built around things and issues that we're having in our community. So, um, yeah, that's what got me to start StoreCash and uh, um, try to solve this uh, unbanked and pre-banked issue. And they all have really awesome, deep stories. I do encourage you to check it out. The stories are amazing. So uh, we, we only have a few minutes left. So I'm humble enough to know that maybe I didn't ask all the, the key questions. So I'll, I'll just leave it as an open-ended for each of you, maybe just 30 seconds or a minute. Anything else you want to share about this particular subject, improvements, calls to action, other thoughts of wisdom or insight that you want to share before we go? I think the only thing, and this was something actually me and my wife were really chatting about, uh, I think like a couple of weekends ago, that I think can be very dangerous is the concept of victimhood. And especially when it comes to being an entrepreneur in your pursuit of your goals. To be an entrepreneur is definitely to walk the path that's less traveled. And to recognize that there are obstacles in your way or that there is adversity in your way is definitely a path of the journey, regardless whatever, you know, race, sex, gender, complexion that you carry. But that being said, developing the mentality of being a victim to a system that you don't have any or much control over isn't going to change or advance how well you'll do. And so I guess my only call to action is that if you'd like to change something, then do something to make the change and not be complacent or 
otherwise, it's cool to just, you know, sit and brood and chat about, you know, where you'd like things to be. But I think it's much cooler to actually think about ways in which you can make impacts and consciously act on this decision. I would say um, just ask for what you want and maybe even more than what you deserve, because these white men who are raising tons of money off of ideas, they're asking for it and they're getting it a lot. Sometimes, we, you know, we even talk about the disparity, the pay disparity between men and women. And there's data that shows that men are asking for uh, higher, higher wages. And that's part of the reason why we have this disparity. Um, and so if, if we're afraid to ask, then we're not going to receive. And also, we don't always have to ask. Sometimes we just take it. You know, we have to be able to take things into our own hands. If we're not going to get funded, do what tons of black women um, are doing, where they're going and doing these great crowdfunding and raising millions of dollars. Like, just don't take no for an answer. And just always ask or do it yourself. I would say believing yourself. There was a lot of situations that us as black people that we go through. My father, he wasn't part of my life. There was even issues while going through college to where there was even lawsuits filed and, and still graduated with three degrees. There was money issues with my previous business. Um, still was a successful venture. I uh, was featured on Steve Harvey show, Kipling Magazine. I always wanted to be in tech and hopped in my car, drove here and, you know, got opportunity to work at Apple, Facebook and Google. And then starting a startup where there's only 1% of black people being funded. And all of that was me trying to believe in myself and saying that um, there's nothing, nothing that I can do. It's, it's all up to me. And yeah, it's very hard. Very difficult. A lot of nights you cry. A lot of things happen. At some point, you'll get to the end of your goal. You're persistent and you keep going. So I love it. A lot of common themes there. Of we we determine our own destinies, and we don't have to be at the whims of others. So we're at the end of our time, and so this has been a tremendous conversation. I hope we can make it an annual thing. Thanks so much to uh, Amira Kwame and, and Derekis, and thanks to uh, Techstar Seattle and and Isaac for helping to arrange this. And let's continue to have these discussions to continue to propel us forward. So thanks again, everybody. Have a great day. We'd like to thank our panelists, Amira, Derekis, and Kwame, as well as our panel host, Techstar Seattle. This podcast was produced by me, Dan Kihanya. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash listen to. That's listen, T-O. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound. <laughs>